You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. So, once again, good morning. Uh, I'm Shada Islam. I'm Director for Europe and Geopolitics at Friends of Europe and it's my pleasure and my privilege to moderate this session. So, this morning, we looked east. Uh, so all the challenges there, and now we're going to look south, south of Europe, what's happening there, and I think all of us know it's a messy situation. It's a messy neighborhood, a messy southern neighborhood, getting messier, if I may say so, also very troubled and also very violent. Uh, the recent deadly terror attacks in Egypt are proof of just how difficult the situation is, and also, of course, the response of the Egyptian government illustrates just how complicated the situation is in our south. We are, of course, partly to blame what, for what's happening there. Um, and in this interconnected and interdependent world, we also know that what happens in our neighborhood in the south or the east impacts on us here in Europe very, very directly, either through the so-called refugee crisis, through terrorism, extremism, but also just impact on our security and our stability and our peace of mind, if you like. So the bottom line really is very simple. Europe cannot be at peace, cannot be prosperous without peace and prosperity in its neighborhood. And at the moment, what we have really is a ring of fire. To achieve change in the neighborhood, we need to work with our neighbors, whether it's Russia or Turkey or um, countries in the Middle East, but we also need to change the way we operate. You know, we've always tended to work with governments, but I think it's now time to move beyond the traditional partners and to work more actively than we've done before with civil society, business leaders, religious leaders, social media activists, and, and others. And so these are the questions we'll be discussing here today. How do we change our policies, our approach, how do we strategize differently to bring peace to this very troubled but very, very emotionally close to us neighborhood? Uh, so let's, before we kick off, let's have a look at some of the comments that we've received at Debating Security Plus, our online brainstorm that we've talked about earlier today. So from Beatriz Becerra Basericia, member of the European Parliament, Subcommittee on Human Rights, she highlights and focuses on the instrumental role of local authorities, that is, municipalities. They're the ones, she says very rightly, who implement the projects and develop plans to fight against radicalization. So for the panel here, something to think about as well. We also have uh, the Dolgor Solongo, officer in charge of terrorism prevention at the UN Office for Drugs and Crime. And she says, also very rightly, terrorists often use criminal groups to procure arms and weapons. The complexity and a variety of such links call for complex responses from the international community. And finally, from our friend and colleague Stefano Menservisi, European Commission Director General for International Cooperation and Development, and he says also very correctly, let's not confuse security and migration. Too often I hear people talking about migration as an issue which is creating security problems and terrorism. This, he says, is not true. So to discuss these and I think other questions as well, we've got a panel of very eminent experts. Let me start off with Cathy Piri, member of the European Parliament Committee on Foreign Affairs and a standing rapporteur as well, Cathy, on Turkey's accession process. So obviously the neighborhood uh, uh, partners that we need to work with. With us also, Mary Fitzgerald, and I think all of you know Mary. She's a, one of the most 
leading independent analyst on Libya. She knows so much. She's in uh, constant demand by many, many organizations for her opinions and actually her recommendation on how to move forward. She's an award-winning journalist and a Friends of Europe European Young Leader. And Anas Talalka, Human Rights Advisor at Inti Remi Fund. And you may know that this organization works with indigenous people and other human rights uh, issues. So, Anas, thank you very much indeed. We're also waiting for Pekka Havisto, Member of the Finnish Parliament uh, and the Foreign Minister's Special Representative on Mediation. Uh, and he's also President of the European Institute of Peace. So he's, he's just arrived at the, at the airport and he's on his way here. But traffic being the way it is, uh, may take a few minutes before he gets here. Let's uh, kick off with you, uh, Cathy. First of all, some comments on what you have seen on our, on our online debate, but also how do we change the way we operate to bring sustainable development, peace, and prosperity in our neighborhood, which is, as I said, really challenge at the moment. Please, yes. five minutes for you. Thank you very much. Well, I think also like, like my colleague, the, the first comment uh, here said that we have to look always to more actors than just governments. You know, for instance, just to give you an example, I think this uh, 3 plus 3 billion euros that um, the European Union has committed uh, to Turkey when it comes to dealing with the migration question is more or less, is to a very large extent, going to the UN organizations. There's nothing wrong with that, but I think, you know, in a, in a, in a more long run, uh, you could do much more with, with those funds in order to strengthen in such a centralized country, especially as Turkey, to strengthen local communities more, to work more with local Turkish uh, civil society, especially in a country like Turkey, where there is absolutely that capacity to also also absorb uh, that, type of, uh, that type of funding. And I would say more in general, um, there, there, it's almost impossible to say something on Turkey in four minutes I have left, but I'll do my best um, because all the topics we are discussing here today, whether it's terrorism, whether it's migration, security, uh, but it's also, of course, a candidate country to join the European Union, they all come together in the question of Turkey. Uh, my criticism from the European Parliament has been that we are kind of only sending one message to Turkey, and it's always only a quite soft message to the government, while in the meantime we are also losing the 80 million people in Turkey. And this is also, you know, it, it asks for a type of dual response. Of course, governments and the EU is dealing um, vis-à-vis uh, capitals, vis-à-vis -vis governments, but by only sending messages there, um, especially in the current situation that Turkey is in, we are also losing or risking to lose a large part of the Turkish population. So absolutely a dual approach should be needed, especially at the current times in Turkey when you have the Syria uh, war going on, you have 3.2 billion refugees, you had a coup attempt which was an existential threat um, and, and according to some still is to the survival of the state, the Turkish state, um, you know, it also, um, at least we could also show somehow more solidarity um, uh, with the people in these dark times, irrespective that you have to be very critical, I think, when it comes to the um, internal, uh, internal developments uh, in the country. Cathy, I'm going to stop you there because you've said something which I actually believe is very important. More cooperation with Turkish civil society and to sort of disconnect what we do with the government and what we, messages we send to the people. But how do you do that with the tools that we have at the moment? How do we actually make that work? 
We are doing it at a very small scale. Mm. I, I would like to see it in a larger scale. We have, for instance, the pre-accession funding uh, for Turkey. It's 700 million euros a year. And right now what we have decided is to cut parts of that money because it's, it's, it's decentralized funding. So it means that actually you can only spend it normally uh, with the approval of the government. Now, I would say let's cut those funding, but let's raise the funding which is more centralized coming from Brussels or coming from the EU delegation in Ankara. Just, the Commission has slowly started doing this, but I think at looking at the needs in Turkey now, we should have done this at a lot, much larger scale. And what, why is it that we're not thinking in those terms? Is it just inertia, bureaucratic inertia, the way we've always done things and, it, and, and an unwillingness to change? I think so, yes. And, and, and of course, a government in any country, especially in a country as big as Turkey and as important, second largest uh, troops within NATO, of course, it's normal that you deal with a government. Uh, and the government is actually very strong. It's a very centralized state in Turkey. But we are losing uh, track of the longer term perspective. I think right now in Ankara, there are other concerns than EU membership, for sure, um, uh, which means, you know, that the leverage that you have vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Turkish government is, I think, lowest at this moment. Uh, but in the meantime, we cannot afford, as you said, Turkey is such an important country for Europe, for NATO. It's an important country... Um, for instance, in, in Holland, in Germany, in France, where we have large Turkish communities, we see the same tension being exported yes. from Turkey inside our communities. Yes. So in the long run, we cannot afford uh, to allow that we are losing 80 million people who, are, uh, who don't look at the European Union as someone who is standing uh, at their side in such a difficult time. I just one, one very quick follow-up before I turn to Mary, but is Turkey still a credible peace uh, actor in the region? Well, it's... Uh, I mean, it's, it's... At this moment, no. But I think uh, we definitely underestimate how the Syria war is affecting the thinking in Ankara. It is an existential question uh, to the survival of the Turkish state, what is going to happen in Syria and how that will, uh, that will look like. The whole Kurdish question, um, you cannot just look at it within the boundaries of the Turkish state. You have to look at what's happening in Syria and in Iraq in order to understand the concerns, I think partly rightful concerns, that are there in Ankara. And right. we sometimes underestimate those. Right, I'm sure there'll be quite a few questions on, on that. But thank you very much, Cathy, uh, for making those very, very pertinent points. Let's turn to Mary. So, Mary, Libya is in a mess as well. And, you know, we've just had uh, uh, footage seen on television about slavery markets in Libya. You've often talked about the, the, uh, the error we make in only siding with strong men. And, you know, we don't actually work with civil society. And you've often said also that the EU, well, the EU member states don't speak with one voice, especially when it comes to Libya. So well, what do you suggest we do differently now? Well, I think, first of all, I'd like to go back to 2011 and the, the earthquake, if you like, that shook our southern neighborhood, the series of uprisings and, and revolutions that took place. And <clears throat> remembering the, the factors that fed into the events of 2011, 
um, the repressive uh, governance, the uh, dictatorships across the region, um, a huge youth population, two-thirds of the region aged under 30 that was increasingly frustrated, increasingly resentful of the conditions they were living under. And six years later, those dynamics are still largely in place, yet the difference is that as well as the frustrations and resentments of that large youth population, you now have a layer on top of that of dashed hopes and expectations, which causes quite a, a toxic mix. And I think in the meantime, because of the aftershocks we saw of 2011, be it in Libya, in Egypt, Syria, across the, the region, there is a, a tendency to lean again towards the, the strong paradigm, um, hoping or believing that that somehow will, will solve the problems. And in my view, that's extremely short-sighted for a whole range of reasons, apart from the fact that it was the, the kind of strongman governance in the region that, that um, prompted uh, the uprisings of 2011. But also the strongman paradigm today is not the strongman paradigm of, of 20 years ago in terms of how technology, social media, etc., has changed the societies where strong men are trying to impose themselves uh, once again. Of course, the strong men of the region are trying to use those technologies for their own means, which is the other side of the coin. But I think there is a danger here that in looking for short-term fixes to a range of challenges emanating from our southern neighborhood, be it the security threat, be it the migration challenge, we basically tip into this idea that it's the strongman answer uh, yet again, which is basically a short-term solution that ends up actually feeding the, the deeper structural uh, problems. So I think we need to learn from that and, uh, and not slip in again to that, uh, to that way of thinking. On Libya specifically, um, you have a situation where, as you said, Chad, I've made the point several times before that um, Libya, a country uh, key to our southern neighborhood, key for a whole range of reasons, including security, migration, energy uh, policy in, in the future, a place that because of its importance for Europe, you would imagine or hope that there would be a convergence of approaches and, and policies from EU member states. What we're actually seeing, despite the fact that the situation in Libya is deteriorating and deteriorating fast, is that we see an increasing divergence uh, amongst EU member states when it comes to, to Libya, each of them pursuing different interests, agendas, etc. So much that the uh, current UN envoy, Ghassan Salame, has repeatedly complained of too many cooks in the Libyan kitchen. Um, and causing uh, feeding fragmentation on the ground in Libya, causing confusion amongst the, the various actors. I would add that all those cooks in the Libyan kitchen are not only doing that, but they have failed to produce anything re remotely edible up to this point. And I think we need to see a greater coordination amongst the, uh, the member states, a greater coordination that in turn bolsters EU policy on Libya and feeds into uh, the UN dialogue process that is trying to uh, find a way out of the current mess. So just, uh, uh, Mary, just come back to the, uh, we're cooperating with Libya, we're doing things differently, governments are pursuing different agendas, and then you see this shocking footage uh, of the slavery market. I mean, uh, you know, so what kind of a message are we sending our public opinion about the kinds of countries, you know, that we're sort of cooperating with when we need to do so? 
Well, I think, you know, for me as, as somebody who's working on Libya and, and watching and observing so closely what's happening on the ground, it's really interesting to see when Libya hits the headlines. Um, Libya will hit the headlines when it's the migration story, the reported slave auction story, or the, the security story in, in the form of Islamic State. But I think that that then feeds this uh, idea that Libya must be viewed purely through the security lens, which is a very distorting lens, not just for Libya, but the entire region. And I think um, we need to look at it through a much broader lens, going back to what Kati was saying earlier, and, and this question of engaging with civil society, which I think is key. But I think given the current dynamics in the region, given that civil society across the region is being squeezed like never before, apart from the, uh, we can say, Tunisia, um, that the, the challenge is navigating the space in which you engage with what is, in m many parts of the region, including Libya now, um, a very fragile civil society. Right. Um, and as I'm going to come to you on that civil society, but because when we look at many civil societies, uh, civil society groups in, in the, our, our south or our east or even in Africa, sometimes by governments they're seen as the enemy. Civil society is seen as the enemy because of all its demands for, you know, representation, rights, etc. So, uh, Katia has said so, Mary has said so, you have to change the paradigm, you have to work with civil society. In your case, from your point of view, how do you do that? How do you engage the youth? How do you engage the civil society? Uh, well, um, like, first of all, like, to uh, maintain stable change in communities in the North Africa and in the Middle East as well, you need to get everyone uh, engaged. I mean, civil society organizations, the state represented in the military or like Egypt or the government in other countries, also outsiders like the EU or NATO and um, other supporters. We need to get, and there seems a very obvious problem, which is communication. And, um, and in this point, I believe the EU can uh, play uh, a major role in creating and forming kind of dialogue between the uh, governments in that region and civil society in that region as well in order to work together uh, on uh, specific issues that both are suffering from. Because the civil society, like, we can't maintain a stable uh, uh, change without engaging the civil society, especially in the MENA region, countries like Jordan, uh, Egypt, countries I worked work in, the youth, this is the only, civil society organizations is the only platform for youth where they can present their ideas and their hopes as well. So when we blockage these platforms and keep them away in the dark, and we as the EU deal only with the state or the military, then we are keeping the youth in the dark. And then after five years or six years, we ask ourselves why young people are joining ISIS, why young people are joining Shabab or Boko Haram, just because they are not represented identity lost. So there should be uh, help in order to, to form that kind of dialogue between the civil society organizations and governments in the Middle East and the EU uh, co could help and assist to maintain this dialogue. But Anas, I'm going to just uh, take you up on that because I take part in several uh, meetings and events which are organized by the European Union, the Commission, External Action Service, where they do bring civil society together, where they do bring women together, journalists together. So are you saying there should be more done or done differently? What? Actually, yeah, it, it's kind of both, done differently and more because also 
when we come here and attend these kind of conferences, they're only the elites of that countries. For instance, the, the bombing that happened in Sena, which is a city in south, really south Egypt, like barely represented by organizations. So it should be more work in, the, in, in each country in a different context, because also the situation in Jordan, different than Libya, different than Egypt, but the way that the EU dealing with the whole region as a one part, this is also as the main obstacle actually for people who are working in the civil society organizations. So tailor-made uh, solutions or tailor-made strategies for the different, different countries. Just very quickly on the role of religious leaders as well, you've said to me that there should be more engagement with religious leaders. What about TV preachers? TV preachers also play a very important role in yes, uh, like radicalization. The way uh, that um, these, actually the social media as well, we all, it's a very effective tool. This is how... Uh, the uh, extremist groups like recruit young uh, like youth in our countries through the social media. So it should be it should be like used in in, in a way that promote for coexistence, uh, peace, uh, living in harmony, and actually should be also laws prevent those extremist imams or teachers in the schools uh, going out to the public and kind of promote for these ideas. And uh, we were discussing about uh, putting those imams or teachers at schools, also actors in the community through design programs which can help them to motivate like youth to engage positively in their communities. Okay, I'm going to move now. Pekka, I've already introduced you, so I'm not going to do it now. But before I go to Pekka, if all four of you could, and perhaps all of you too, uh, reflect a little bit on the changes that are taking place in the region because of the reform process underway in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, uh, uh, so just think, will that change uh, the landscape in terms of funding for terrorism, transparency, etc.? I'm not convinced, but I'd like to uh, hear from you, you, the experts, and perhaps from someone in the audience as well. But Pekka, you have been listening to the different uh, highlights that they've uh, pointed to, you know, the civil society... And I think one of the issues that you've sort of hinted at once uh, or twice before is the silo approach. We tend to work very much in silos. Uh, how do we break that pattern? Well, first of all, sorry, I was a little bit late for logistical reasons. Um, on the silo issue, when I mean, looking to south, I, I take now a little bit liberty and talk also about Afghanistan, which is one of the source of the refugees to, to Europe at the moment and when visiting there in June. We had actually excellent information even in the EU offices there how a comprehensive peace process should be run. But at the same time, we have the very strong US-based view on, on military approach. President Ghani's strong commitment to the US military increasing amount. And, and actually, we are losing the track of this uh, comprehensive peace process at the same time. And, and we, should, we should really build together at the same time, our military approach and our peace-building approach. And I, I'm the person who, whether it's Sudan, where I was the European Union Special Envoy for, for Sudan and Darfur, or lately in Somalia, our Central African Republic and so forth, are talking about the comprehensive peace processes, which include the civil society component, which include the women, but also so-called bad guys. Maybe just to mention that uh, there's uh, Al-Sabab and, and Boko Haram mentioned uh, this Finnish-Somali uh, who has been made a 
a survey interviewing 130 Boko Haram supporters and then more than 100 Al-Sabab supporters asking why you are supporting this movement. And it's a very surprising reading, particularly with the Boko Haram, because there are many women activists in Boko Haram, and they support it for social reasons and to get development in the villages and things like that, looking that it's the only option that they see is speaking for these marginalized people. And, and of course, then, if you see that there is this kind of market for, for ideas, we should think what we could offer instead of these radi radical movements. Actually, you talked very well about the radicalization when it's the only option maybe for, for some people or only perspective. Or in, 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 in Somalia where guys who are met in Puntland are saying that they have two options to come as a refugee to Europe or to be a pirate. No schooling, no jobs and, and so forth. So what are we doing actually when we are fighting the piracy on the sea with the Atalanta operation? It was a great operation, but the youth still were totally untouched there in, in, in Puntland and, and were uh, recruited in the future for, for these purposes. So I, I think that, that's what I'm thinking about, the, speaking about the comprehensive approach, that we address the civil society, we address the education, we address the youth. And maybe I take the final example, which is a little bit painful, also for us, uh, uh, Finns who have been lately involved very much in Eritrea. Of course, now you say, don't touch Eritrea, it's a dictatorship, Afenberg is a crazy guy, no government, no, uh, no juridical arrangements there, no constitution and so forth. Eritrea allows currently teacher training in the country where those who are trained as teachers are released from this famous military service. So they can directly go to the schools. And we have been starting to fund, of course, this little bit, the crack in the wall in the system where you can get a group of the young people escaping the, the military service. And we just, I was just some weeks ago in, in Asmara where young people publicly said actually that this is the motivation why they want to be teachers because they, they can be released from this 10 year service. And this is going on, this is possible. So why don't we use these cracks as well in this even authoritarian, so that instead of only saying we cannot touch Eritrea because nobody can do anything there. That's not true. Right. You made some very, very important points. Uh, I have to say the comprehensive peace process, I've been writing about it for years and years and years. Um, why hasn't it actually been done? I mean, why are we just still talking about it? And then the three points you made uh, I think are so important. So you have to engage with the bad guys because the bad guys of today can be the good guys tomorrow if you engage with them properly. The importance of creating more choices on the ground, I thought that was very much what the EU is doing. And finally, the cracks in the wall, move in there. But that requires really agile and nimble um, intellectual and practical thinking, right? Yeah, it, of course, needs knowledge of the country and, and some kind of intelligence also to use these uh, opportunities. But, but talking to the bad guys, if I take Sudan as an example, of course, for example, in Darfur, there are the, the more moderate movements, and then there has been the Islamist the justice and equality movement. And in the very beginning, I think the international community started to give advice, hey, don't talk to these guys, because these are the Islamist guys, rather talk to the moderate guys. And everybody knows on the ground what is the situation. You, you cannot solve the problem just by talking to, to other guys, but not to the other guys. Or if we take now uh, uh, Afghanistan without talking to Taliban, it's impossible. i just give you an example. I met Mr. Muttawakil, the former uh, foreign minister of Taliban. He's a free man. He's running a private university in Kabul and so forth. 
When I met him, he said, now Taliban needs help. Can you help Taliban? And I said, Mr. Muttavakil, very interesting proposal. What kind of help Taliban needs? He said, Taliban needs help against radicalization because ISIS is coming, coming to Afghanistan, radicalizing the youth in their uh, campuses and, and recruiting people to fight in Syria. And we want to be the nationalist Islamist and not the internationalist Islamist <laughs> type of argumentation. I, when I'm speaking about the cracks in the wall, I'm meaning this kind of small, small opportunities. Hey, let's, let's discuss. Let's look what we could do. But maybe finding a, a, a better solution, what is maybe in their mind. Thank you very much. So I'm going to turn now. I think our panelists have really made some very, very important contributions to how we can change the traditional way of doing things. I mean, our uh, uh, Security Plus debating, uh, debating Security Plus conclusions sort of tie in with what we were saying. So one of the things they said in, the, in, in our uh, DS Plus was think small to prevent counter-radicalization strategies. Think small, which is a little bit what you're saying, Michael and an inclusive, all-inclusive approach to development, defense, and security issues. So many of the things that you're saying, I think, you know, the general public, the people who are interested in security are saying it as well. I think the challenge is to move from words and, and thinking into actually action. And there, I think, governments need to show a little bit more intellectual agility and adventurous spirit as well, risk-taking, I guess. So let's open the floor to uh, questions from yourself. Uh, identify yourself, keep it short and simple, and I'll turn to the panelists for their responses. Who wants to go first? Okay, I'm just going to have the silence. I'm not going to say a word. And somebody somewhere will put up their hand and, and ask the question. Okay, there we go. I knew it. <laughs> okay, let's take you first, sir, and then the lady there, and then perhaps somewhere at the back. Of and Beatrix, if you want to ask a question, that's fine too. Please, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, turn it on, please. And you haven't learned. There you go. Okay, awesome. Uh, hi, um, Nicholas Novaki, Wilfried Martin Center for European Studies. Uh, just uh, one question to uh, Mr. Harvisto. Uh, a bit off topic, but related to more to the um, content of the previous panel, but given that nobody was asking a question. Um, uh, you, you participated yesterday in the presidential debate in, in Helsinki, and you mentioned something very interesting. You said that. Uh, uh, you, you have previously supported a referendum on NATO if Finland would, jo would join, um, but uh, you, you have now changed your mind because, in your opinion, uh, if uh, there would be a referendum, Finland would be subject to an unprecedented hostile influence campaign and no actor uh, would, uh, would stay away from that campaign. So my, my question just is, how, how can we ensure that our, our elections and referendums could be conducted free of this sort of uh, hostile influence? Thank you very much. Okay, let's, let's have you respond to that, because uh, then I'll move on to the, the lady and others, perhaps. This is a very good question, actually, when we are looking at the, the current hybrid and, and cyber trends. But, but I have been talking to some researchers who have been really looking how Facebook, Twitter, Google, things were used in, in, in Trump elections by somebody outside of U.S. or how Brexit 
could have been manipulated, there are clear evidence that this, this is ongoing. And of course, this, at least has changed my opinion first on, on electrical voting, because I, I, don't, I don't think that uh, we, we should go to, 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 to modern voting mechanisms because these can be manipulated and it cannot be witnessed how it has been used. But I think it's a very, very important that we in Europe update our knowledge on hybrid war, hybrid conflict, hybrid influence, and, and, and cyber uh, influence. And I really mentioned this because Finland is not a member of NATO. Some people want that if we one day will be, there will be a popular voting. Uh, well, if I would be somewhere thinking that it's not a good idea that Finns are supporting NATO, I could imagine quite many things that you can do, uh, both on the, on the cyber world and also by putting a public threat to the voters from outside, influencing actually to the individual country. Right. And we are actually facing the, the very key issues of democracy in, at this quite hostile environment that we are now. Yeah. We had that uh, conversation in the first uh, session as well. Thank you for pointing that out. Yes, please, lady over there. I'm looking there. Yeah, great. Okay, brilliant. Yes, please. Pascal Ngabori, pilot for Dev. Um, I have a short questions. Uh, the, the first one is, um, you said that um, uh, the, the security lens has a bit overshadowed the dialogue with civil society. Don't you think that the management of the refugee crisis, so not the refugee crisis itself, but the management of it at EU level, has not deteriorated the relationships with the southern uh, countries? Uh, and, and the future of a more, uh, let's say, constructive stability. My second question is, uh, um, you mentioned civil society. Are also women included and dialogue with women included in this uh, dialogue with civil society? Uh, and finally, don't we need also more experts like you, research and channels of communication to the decision makers? Because what we see sometimes is a simplification of reality and uh, uh, difficulty then, uh, in what it leads to constructive decision making. Thank you. Thank you very much. Three very good points. I mean, uh, going against the group thinking, I think, is, 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 is vital in when we look at things happening that we don't really understand very well. Thank you so much. Uh, yes, please, the lady over there, right at the back. My name is Mona Alami. I'm a non-resident fellow with the Atlantic Council. My question is to Mr. Pekka. I thought you made a very interesting point when you were talking about Taliban's problem with ISIS. How much does this type of uh, thinking apply to Syria? For example, when we look at groups like HDS, Tahrir al-Sham, which have Syrianized a lot in the past uh, year and who are becoming more and more pragmatic, it seems. And we've seen that recently with like, the covert uh, cooperation that's happening between Turkey and HDS and Idlib. And given especially that Syria is such a major problem for Europe in terms of uh, migration crisis. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. And there was one other hand. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, here, right in front. Please just keep up your hand or, or take the microphone from your... Uh, yeah. You have to press a button. Yeah. You can do it. There's a button inside. Yeah. <laughs> I used, to, I used to be a journalist in this Sorry. press room, so I know how to do it. <laughs> uh, I have a question for Mary. My name is Brandon. I'm from One uh, Development NGO about the uh, UN-led peace talks in Libya, um, which we all know kind of um, faltered a bit at the end of last month um, due to the resurgence of uh, violence in the East and West and the East-based representatives pulling out. Um, and so my question is um, kind of, given the, the faltering of the talks, 
um, and the the opening of the uh, EES delegation again in Tripoli at the end of the year. I know you mentioned that the UN led um, the, the the delegation had said there were too many cooks in the kitchen, but seeing as the EU has been able to place some political pressure um, on Libya, um, you know, with regards to the migration issue. Do you think that there is something more that the EU could be doing um, to, to place more pressure and, and kind of shift the, the, the incentives for more political cooperation for the UN talks? Thanks, Brendan. Thank you very much. Sir, please. Uh, yeah. Okay. Just go for it. Go for it. Hello. Yes, my name is Jose Maria Lopez Navarro. I work in NATO. And uh, I would like to uh, ask uh, to the lady, sorry, I forgot your name, uh, who spoke on Libya. You mentioned just the diverging views on Libya in the EU. Could you please elaborate a little bit on which are those uh, main divergent uh, uh, areas of thinking and which countries are sponsoring them? Uh, thank you. Right. Uh, one more question is... Uh, is Allowed? Who is it? Bianca? No. Go ahead. Just keep your hand up or, or, or dive into your uh, seat. Yeah. And turn the button on. Yeah. Uh, hello, Olivia K. Max. A uh, question for um, whoever wants to answer, actually. What can civil society do differently to encourage the leaders uh, towards more value leadership and putting human and people back in the center of leadership? I'm linking to a question that was in the previous session, but I think the panel here will, might have different responses. Thank yeah, you. Thank you very much for that question. Okay, I'm going to start with Anas. Yeah, go, go that way. So perhaps you can take that yeah, question about... Do you need a microphone, right? Do I need yes, of course you do. <laughs> Uh, okay, I, w I will start where you uh, ended. Actually, the only thing that civil society needs to do is to keep it challenging the government because if they stop one day, one moment, then the things that we are seeing now in Egypt, the whole organizations, including international organizations, the human rights organizations, they can't act. They can't function normally. So this is the only thing that uh, we don't motivate leaders. We challenge them to do their job. And this is the situation in the Middle East. Uh, but that lands you, I'm sorry, but that lands you in prison. Yes, indeed, of course, but this is it different from country to another. There is limits where you can somehow push, and in some countries your personal security is what matters. And that's why a lot of organizations has moved from Egypt to Tunis or to Jordan to function from there. So there is always... Uh, um, a new way, but like giving up, stop, it's, it's not going to help. And this is actually the most effective way to motivate leaders. This is the general, like, let's answer. But also there is some Arabic uh, or like, other governments in the region are cooperative with civil society organizations. There is space for dialogue. There is a kind of uh, building partnership. It's slow, but... Um, like showing the government how your organization, how your work and contribution in education, healthcare, other issues is very important, then we'll give you the space and the ticket to uh, work uh, side by side with the government. Can you give an example? Can you give a practical example of Yes, actually, and also um, I always go refer back to Jordan because I'm from Jordan. There is uh, more than five institutions uh, three of them started as initiatives and 
civil sister organizations and ended up as a real uh, uh, family institutions now, Madrasity, uh, Jordan's River, in working in different uh, issues in different uh, topics, but started from civil society organizations, not governmental organizations, because it shows that what they are doing is important. Now they are uh, real, uh, organi real organizations, which is the, this is the highest thing that civil society organization can uh, act. The other question about women engagement and the link between uh, uh, between the policymakers and the civil society. Uh, like researchers in this field, human rights uh, officers or advisors, they are not, they are part of this uh, like uh, ward, which is civil society organizations, but the one who is going to motivate politicians and people in offices and senior offices to make the change are not those researchers, actually the civil society organizations. And one of the EU, uh, the recommendations for civil society organizations was given by the EU and EAS in, uh, in July. Last July was to approach the EU delegations and other delegations like the World Bank or NATO as a networks. So civil society organizations should work more in networking and being in networks either it's a country uh, level network or like regional networks or like uh, worldwide networks. So approach, that's give them more credibility in order to approach uh, embassies or right. uh, uh, political forums. Right, so reaching out and, yeah. and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you, Anas. Katy, uh, please, your responses. And also the question of women's uh, involvement. I think uh, on the question on, on migration and the effect it had, um, it, it definitely, and of course looking um, from the country I know best, which is Turkey in the region, it very much showed that the EU is willing to make very transactional, value-free deals. And this is not something that was perceived as that by the large population, let me be honest about it, but by key civil society leaders. And, uh, you know, this is something we'll have to... Um, will have to uh, live with and cope with in the coming years. I, I, I think migration has become kind of the key or actually stopping migration. We still say managing it, but it looks more like stopping it has become the key foreign policy instrument in, in many of the countries. And I think we all know in this room how short-sighted it is and probably also uh, not as effective in the, in the midterm and in the, long, in the longer run. When it comes to civil society, what I... What I find um, interesting to see is whether you speak, for instance, in Turkey with business, whether you speak with trade unions, whether you speak with civil society, which is under pressure, all of them, for instance, raise the issue of the state of emergency, how important it would be that they are lifted. But these actors are not talking to one another. They are not coming back together, although they all have the single, you know, their first point they are raising in, in any meeting is this. Mm -hmm. And how come these groups cannot find a way of uh, cooperating? The same, for instance, on women organizations. Uh, NGOs in Turkey are very much also linked to the segments that are there in Turkish society. You have the secular ones, you have the, the more Ak-party uh, civil society, um, you have the more Kurdish civil society. But for instance, on an issue like women's rights, these organizations working on women's rights, all from a different perhaps background, 
should find, you know, should cross these boundaries of working together. I think that's when uh, you could have uh, a much greater impact. It, it goes against the trend in society. It goes against uh, the way of thinking. Uh, but we see this sometimes happening at the local level, and that's the moment, I think, that they can have a much bigger impact. So, so the EU or European uh, can encourage that across-sector sort of cooperation. Would we not then be accused of meddling in the internal affairs of... Uh state like Turkey? Well, I think, you know, when, whenever the EU, for instance, is organizing something on women's rights, um, uh, make sure you have that wide segment represented. We sometimes only tend to work with those we feel more comfortable with, which is uh, logically the people who look most like us, who talk like us. Um, and I think it's, it's one of the challenges to reach out really to, to all segments, especially in a country like Turkey, where, which is so divided, where there's so much uh, more and more polarization happening. And then I think look for those areas, and women's rights is, I think, one of the areas where it should be possible to bring those segments more closer together. So don't run away from a woman who's wearing a headscarf, basically. Exactly. Okay, thank you so much. Mary, please. So uh, just on the, the Libya-specific questions, and to start first with the, the question on the divergent views and, and approaches in Europe, there are three, the three key EU member states when it comes to Libya are Italy, France, and, uh, and the UK, with several other smaller member states also taking a, a, an interest and in having a greater engagement in, in recent months. And in terms of how the divergence of approaches and policies and views is actually contributing to the crisis in, in Libya, of course, everybody um, publicly says they support the UN uh, dialogue process and the Libyan political agreement that emerged from that process uh, in late 2015. But then, of course, there's the reality on the ground, um, where basically various political and armed factions are approached by various member states, um, deals are struck, promises are made, uh, assistance of all sorts is offered and implemented um, to take care of certain interests at particular times. Why is that harming uh, the situation and, and, and causing a further deterioration of the situation in, in Libya? On two fronts, we'll, we'll talk about two fronts. Number one, um, when people feel that in order to tackle the migration issue, they need to um, engage with and allegedly cut deals with um, militias that are themselves embedded in the whole network of human smugglers in Libya and are embedded in the militia culture in Libya that has been a, a break on, on Libya's progress since 2011. This is a problem. When member states uh, court uh, publicly key actors in the Libyan conflict, who have been the key, obst key obstacles to the UN dialogue process since its inception in 2014, who are backed by external regional actors. Um, I'm talking about Khalifa Haftar, of course, who uh, the would-be strongman of, of Libya, who dreams to be uh, the equivalent of, of Sisi in Libya. When somebody like Haftar, who has shown his absolute intransigence and opposition and willingness to undermine the UN process, is courted by key EU members, states, um, that's a problem because that basically, as we've seen uh, in recent months, emboldens uh, Hafter to the degree that he's still not, has, he still hasn't come to the table, he still hasn't shown any willingness to, to compromise. And going back to the question about what the EU, what more the EU can do, um, and how, as you, as you put it, the UN talks um, have been uh, faltering. 
December 17th is the date that a lot of people in Libya are looking towards now because December 17th is the date uh, that Haftar and his camp believe the Libyan political agreement expires. The UN uh, counters that saying there's no expiry date for the agreement but Haftar's camp importantly are seeing this as the expiry date. So there's a lot of trepidation, a lot of concern about what could happen in and around December 17th because the, the UN envoy Hassan Salame's action plan has faltered somewhat. The steps haven't been ticked off as, as, as quickly as people would have liked. So we're facing an interesting situation, mm. I think, in December 17th. Unfortunately, going back to the, the, what I call the Haftar conundrum, which has been <laughs> one of the main conundrums in Libya since 2014 and, and remains still today, Haftar is as strong as his external backers make mm. him, and that is, uh, that is helping bolstering his support base inside Libya. His external backers being the UAE and Egypt. And going back, uh, Shada, to what you were mentioning earlier about you know, what we're seeing in, in Saudi Arabia and how that is kind of affecting uh, the region. I have to say that unlike a certain New York Times columnist, I'm a skeptic when it comes to this. Certain New York Times columnist who a few days ago was hailing this as Saudi I Arabia's um, Arab Spring. Um, I think that, you know, when it comes to the, the Saudi, UAE, Egypt nexus in the region right now, uh, which is trying to be the dominant kind of uh, nexus, you know, make mis no mistake, this is not about political pluralism. This is a particular view of the region, particular view of dynamics in the region. And, you know, if, if we look specifically at the Libyan context, I find it quite ironic because um, key to Haftar's forces in, in Libya are Saudi-inspired uh, Mudkali Salafis um, who have been attacking uh, Sufi shrines and mosques, who have been detaining Sufis, who have been issuing fatwas against uh, Sufis. Yet Haftar is often presented in Europe as a secular strongman, mm. um, yet his, a key component of his forces are Salafis. So uh, somebody talked earlier about the need to move beyond black and white simplistic mm. narratives and frames from the region. Libya is, is a key example, and I think too many people are falling for those very simplistic mm. uh, narratives that key Libyans want, want to present. Mm. Just to reassure ourselves, I guess, in a sense. Yeah. Becca, please. Thank you. If I just start with... Uh, <laughs> note on the Saudi Arabia, uh, I was listening a couple of days, uh, I think it was a BBC radio program, interviewing young people on the streets and, and particularly these young female vendors, which are now allowed, you know, run their own businesses and others. And internally, for the women's perspective, it looked like a revolution. But the same people criticized actually the Saudi Arabia's foreign policy <laughs> tendencies. So it was, uh, it's, it's mixed back, but, but uh, hopefully it means for women something new and something better in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Second point is about the European Union and, and, and migration. I, I think we have witnessed a phenomena that uh, foreign policy has moved out from the foreign ministries in Europe <laughs> towards the ministries of justice and ministries of interior, at least in, in our country. Those people who are, who are coming to negotiate these repatriation programs for the refugees or something like that, uh, they are mostly from other ministries than Ministry for Foreign Affairs. I'm very, very concerned about this phenomenon because we are actually losing the perspective of solving the conflicts or we are losing the perspective of, of using really foreign policy tools and we are more and more using other tools actually from Ministry of Justice and Ministries of Interior. Not good development. 
Then on the NGOs, I don't want to give too many advice. Of course, in many countries, NGOs are the ones who are keeping the hope. If we now look what's happening in, in, in Zimbabwe, Mugabe and others, luckily there has been you know, people all the time saying that this development is not good and it's not uh, legal and, and, and so forth. But uh, what, what I also recommend is that when, when NGOs are coming to countries, Keep an eye those local NGOs who are already working there. In Sudan, organizations like Sudo, in Somalia, women organizations like Hanad, who very often feel that when the international NGOs are arriving, they, they even don't know about these local initiatives, which actually are working very much in the same direction, which is our, our aim. How to build those contacts is important. And then my last comment is about the Taliban ISIS uh, could be could this kind of thinking be relevant in in Syria or or or, or other uh, places? Uh, maybe I take I, I don't I don't dare to go in a detailed way on the Syrian uh, issues, but I, I take one example, which is Somalia, which I've been following very closely. Al Shabab had, I would say, in the beginning, seven different power bases and a little bit different thing in there. Then there was Hezbollah Islam people like Sheikh Aves, which we had the opportunity at some moment to talk and, and try to get him into peace process. And, and I definitely felt that there were several cracks in the wall on this, what we looked as, you know, Islamists or jihad, even jihadists or something like that. But unfortunately, we, we failed mostly to, to attract them and, 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 and talk to them and, and so forth. What are the reasons? Probably those reasons that I mentioned, this kind of our political thinking that these are bad people, we don't talk to these and others. The one, one issue that was mentioned by you was, was very good, the role of the religional leaders and role of imams and others. And there you could probably advance also in those situations. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It brings us, I think, quite nicely to the end of this session. And let me just, for all four of you, just very, very quickly, what is the one thing, the one thing of all the different powerful suggestions you've all made, the one thing that we should be doing differently from what we're doing now? Uh, Cathy, let's start with you. I think a, a generally broader perspective, especially, you know, when we are here in the Brussels bubble, um, where, where the thinking is still very much always, always oriented uh, to, towards, uh, towards government, is to broaden that perspective and to also think about the messages that you can send to the rest of society is very often not through the government. Thank you. And uh, As a civil organization and working in a fund, to help others in dignity and respect, ask them how we can help not, uh, not impose our agenda on them. That will make it more sustainable. Mary. Um, well, I would echo, I know it's in the Debating Security Plus recommendations um, because migration hasn't come up so much in, in our discussion today, I think, in terms of tackling it, but creating legal, regulated uh, migration uh, channels. It has to be key to any yes. sensible migration policy in, in, in Europe and rebalancing that current dynamic to in favor of orderly flows because one thing I, I see happening in Libya now is that, you know, Libya has been a hub, as we all know, over the last six years, and actually during the Gaddafi era as well, for migrants coming from sub-Saharan Africa trying to get to Europe. What we're now seeing, 
worryingly, is Libyans taking mm. the smugglers' boat, boats, um, over 600 of them um, so far this year. Right. There are young Libyans who feel that Libya has nothing mm. to offer them anymore. The situation has deteriorated to such a degree. So establishing legal channels has to be key to any sensible policy on migration going right. forward. Thank you, Mary. Becca. Well, we are very proud that European Union is a peace project inside Europe, but let's make European Union a peace project also outside of Europe, taking into consideration this comprehensive and, and inclusive approach to different players. Hmm. Thank you very much indeed. I can only say absolutely right here, here, that's the way to go. I, I do see very powerful suggestions coming from you and a real change of track, tack and track and how we've been operating. All I can say is I do see hope, and I'll tell you why. Um, just recently, uh, Federica Mogherini went to Bangladesh and Myanmar as part of the Azam discussions. And, you know, the question of Rohingya Muslims, of course, is not part of our discussion today. It's further off. But security means security in the global context. And we managed, as the European Union, to bring together 10 Asian countries, 10 um, European countries, to talk about the Rohingya. We engaged with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi on a question that you all know she has really steered clear of, uh, shied away from. And there is some kind of a deal. So, so when, when there is a will, there is a way. And I think, you know, that deal may or may not come to fruit. I hope it does for all our sakes and for the sake of the Rohingyas. But we can do it when we want to. And I would really s uh, agree with you, uh, Pekka, and all of you who say that, you know, Europe as a peace project within but in the 21st century, when there's so much not peace around us, we really need to reach out more powerfully than we have. Formally, always, of course, but also informally. And I think in today's world, where non-state actors, civil society, business leaders are crucial in diplomacy, I think that's the way to go. And I think that's the message that our conclusions of debating Security Plus point to as well. So please join me in thanking our panelists and for your questions as well. Um, I think there's another coffee break. There is another coffee break, and then we'll be back here at 12 o'clock. Thank you.